you know, the reason they, they like reading my stuff is that I've always got real life examples to prove what I'm saying. There's a lot of good people that listen to this podcast. You know, other than God and my family, deer hunting would be next in line on my list of priorities. From the bottom of our hearts, it's it's just fantastic and awesome to uh, to have the support that you guys are getting. People ask me about expandable broadheads and love swings. <laughs> Chasing Giants with Don Higgins and Terry Peer. Brought to you by Osseo Camo, nature's most lethal camouflage. Follow along as Don and Terry discuss the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Well, welcome everyone to the Chasing Giants podcast. This is episode 156 on February 12th, Super Bowl Sunday, and sorry we're a little late today. Well, Super Bowl, toilet bowl, about the same thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, yep. People didn't. Uh, people don't realize how close we were to this not happening. We had severe technical difficulties this weekend. I was in uh, southwestern Tennessee yesterday expecting to do the podcast last night and record it with some guys that are friends of ours in the room and have a lot of fun and my hard drive on my computer went kaput so i drove through the night to get back to get everything uh redone and ready and we're recording a little bit later on sunday than what we want to so thanks everybody for their patience i know a bunch of people are probably wondering where we're at right now yeah, for those of you listening, Terry had a long night uh, making this happen. Uh, drove home, got home at about four in the morning, and then he's been working on his computer ever since. And he's probably going to miss the Super Bowl. Yeah, I will be in bed. I can assure you that. So before we get started, Don, what do you think of my new Prodigy Edition shirt here? Can you see it? Yeah, Code Brown. Yep. So yeah, it's got a, it's got a nice uh, chasing giants logo on the back. But my favorite thing for all the people that aren't listening, I don't know if you can see that. Can you see what that says? I can see it, but I can't see what it says. A little dotted line with scissors, and it says "cut here" instead of using sock. Yeah. Well, so we're trying did to Wes, uh... We're trying to plan ahead for the prodigy, so we got a new prodigy edition T-shirt here for him. Does he get a cut of sales or? Oh, I'm sure we can put it towards his kid's college fund or something if we start making them there. This is a limited one-off only edition that I had made as a joke. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, Wes is never going to hear the end of that. I just seen uh, Kevin Thayer made a post on the social media. He found some gloves on sale and he said, uh, cheaper than (laughs) socks, Wes, or something like that. Well, everybody wonders why we always pick on Wes. It's because we we love him to death like a brother. He's a uh, he's a good sport, but uh, a very very good consultant. I've seen a couple of these plans he's put together here recently, and uh, he's doing really well at this, isn't he? Yeah, he's doing fantastic, and actually, he's probably going to end up doing more properties than well, he definitely is going to end up doing more properties than any of the other consultants on the Dream Team, and. In fact, he's probably going to do twice as many as anyone else on the Dream Team, and he's made quite a name for himself over the past couple of years. Yeah, he's hitting the road hard. I think his wife Madison gets to travel a little bit with him, and I asked him, I said, "What does Madison do while you're out walking these properties?" And she she likes to read, so she either stays in the hotel or in the truck and reads while he's doing it. So I think they're pretty much living the dream, traveling the country, and um, and. Um, yeah, done done really well for himself as a young man. We're going to talk a, a little bit about what's been going on, but I want to circle back. You've been sick, so if you break into a coughing fit and we have to cut away for a second, uh, everybody will just have to bear with us. You got really sick after the uh, Ohio show and have been yeah. battling it ever since. Yeah, I came home last Saturday night. I got home about 10. I uh, went to bed shortly thereafter and woke up Sunday morning just sick as could be. And actually, this is Sunday again, so it's been a full week that I, I was pretty sick. I went to the doctor, and I'm not sure if it was – he said it was either COVID or the flu, but based on the symptoms and everything, I, I think it was probably COVID again, which would be my fourth bout with it. But, uh, you know, there's something positive that came out of out of me being laid up. Now, 
I had to cancel a couple of local consulting visits I had planned this week and everything, but you know, I just laying around and feeling terrible. I got to watch TV for the first time in a long time. And I got to, and I don't watch what most people would probably watch anyway, but you know, one of my favorite pastors is, is John Hagee. And I, I watched several John Hagee sermons, um, laying on the couch this week. And, uh, now, one thing that, that struck me from the sermons I listened to with him was, you know, we're in a battle with light and darkness, good and evil. And it really struck me in one of his sermons, he was talking about how light and darkness cannot coexist in the same place at the same time. And it's the same way with each of us, you know, it's either one or the other, it's either light or darkness. And we're either a light in this world or, or we're not. And, uh, it just kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, inspired me to make sure that my light's always shining. And, you know, sometimes I have a tendency to look at the, the negative instead of the positive. And it's just really hit me really. And since we started the podcast, I, you know, I was always just considered myself an, another everyday deer hunter and I still do really, but you know, I, people looking up to me was just something that was very hard for me to accept. And just here recently, I, I've started to accept the fact that, you know, and it really, it really hit me at Ohio when we had those two events that people look up to both of us actually. And, you know, I've, I've just seen the, the, the responsibility that comes with that and the responsibility to be a light, be a light in this dark world, instead of letting that world, uh, that dark world, you know, overcome us and, and drag us down. Um, so even though I was sitting there feeling terrible all week, laying on the couch, didn't even want to get up. Um, something positive came out of that from that John Hagee sermon that, um, I'm more committed than ever to being a light in this dark world. Yeah. I think, uh, you probably needed the rest too, whether you were sick or not, you've been hitting it pretty hard here since the, the, the beginning of the year. But yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. still not comfortable. I thought it was the oddest thing in the world was when some uh, some people came and bought a Chasing Giants hat and wanted us to sign it or wanted their picture with us. That's just, it's so odd. I'm I'm not used to that at all. I don't know that I ever will be. That's just weird. Well, me either, because I always just considered myself another deer hunter. And I guess that's why I put myself out there more than a lot of people in the hunting industry, because I never ever and i still don't to this day consider myself a celebrity or anything like that um but boy just some of the conversations and some of the things people said in ohio last week i think it, you know it was all god orchestrated all of it he put those people in my path last week and then he put me on that couch to listen to that sermon i needed to hear and uh i just it's just starting to to hit me the platform that we've been given and what a responsibility we have to be a light in a dark yeah. world. I I had the responsibility to get up in front of that big crowd on Friday night last week and introduce you and talk a little bit about Lester's feet. And I probably took it as sideways. I don't know why I did, but I did. Um, talking a little bit about um, Ephesians chapter four and Paul but um at the end of the, i didn't i don't think i even told you this when we got back to the house last week one of the guys that right before the um the event started that came through and shook our hand and met us he came back over to me afterwards and he's actually got stage four cancer right now and uh, came back over and just put his arm around me and thanked me and i'm like well at the end of the day, if all this equals to encouraging one guy that's making a fight and trying to push and making himself right with the Lord, I guess it's all worth it. Um, but just super blessed at all the people that came out and uh, showed us so much love this week. Yeah, you know, I got a a message from that that gentleman's son. You know, they came by and had their picture taken with us, and they uh, had to sign their hat his his hat for his dad and. Um, his son was just thanking me for the, for the evening that he got to spend with his father fighting cancer. And, um, it, it's things like that, that make it all worthwhile. Yeah. 
Well, let's let's go to the topic a hand of what we're here to talk about, and that's deer hunting. Um, did you get to do anything while you were home? I think you said maybe you pulled some trail cameras. What what do you got cooking even when you're on your uh, couch watching uh, television sermons? Well, I did. There's a couple afternoons. I just I felt like I needed to get up and stir. Um, laying around just it isn't good on me anyway. I don't think it's good on most people, but uh, so I got out and I did check. Uh, well, I pulled probably 10 cameras uh, total this week, and you know, it's just that time to be bringing them in and um, take inventory and all that and make sure that the cameras are still in good shape for next year. And uh, so I started that process and no new bucks on, on any of the cameras, but uh, confirmed that, that some possibilities for the future are still alive. And uh, I'm you know, getting to work on that part of the the whole process for next year. Yeah, I want to talk about pulling cameras just a little bit because you you gave a small tip. What was it three weeks ago that we haven't really talked about? And I'd like you to kind of refresh that because we have so many new listeners. But you said something about you don't pull the cards out of the cameras until you get back home to basically check the condition of the camera. Why don't you give that little tip? Because I think that's great advice. Um, I'd never heard you talk about that before. Yeah. So this time of the year when I'm pulling those cameras in, um, you know, I'll put them back out about the first of July, but I, there's no sense in having those cameras out in the spring months. But, uh, when, when I collect them this time of the year, I, I just, uh, you know, I'll go get the camera, I'll open it up and I will shut it down, enter my, my code, um, security code on the camera and shut it down. And I'll leave that card right in there. And then uh, when I get home, I bring all those cameras in, set them on my desk. And one at a time, I will open them up. I'll turn them back on to make sure they're functioning and everything. Um, if the batteries are close to being dead, I'll take them out and throw them away. Um, but then I pull that card and, and I look at that card and uh make sure that that camera was working properly if not you know i'll make a note on, on a post-it note or something and i'll stick it inside that camera and whatever the issue was and you know with reconics and, and their uh their warranty system uh you can send those cameras back if there's any issue whatsoever but if you go out there and you're pulling you know at six eight ten cameras at a time you're pulling them cards out and you bring it back and you stick a card in and boy that camera had an issue well then you got a whole you know, a fiasco of trying to figure out which ca camera it was that had the issue. So when I'm pulling them this time of the year, I just leave that card in, bring that whole camera in, check it out, make sure everything's working. Yeah. I'm not real good at going in and formatting each camera with a custom name that I can tell what picture came with it. I don't know. Maybe I need to be better at that too, but just seems like a really good tip to make sure that you don't put a bad camera out once we get into velvet season and end up a, another problem happening. Um, right, right. Real quick before we go to the Osseo spot, uh, what do you got cooking for? I think you got a, a travel schedule hitting this week, right? Are you heading, getting ready to head out? Yeah. On uh, Wednesday morning, I'm headed to uh, up by Winona, Minnesota for a seminar Wednesday evening, the next evening I'll have one in Nebraska and then the consulting visit in Nebraska on Friday, uh, the whitetail, um, management summit in Salina, Kansas will be next Saturday. And then I've got, uh, probably at least five more consulting visits out that way before I head home. So I'm going to be on the road for about 10, 11 solid days starting middle this week. Yeah, that's going to be a big tour. Are you going to be able to stop by and pick up your new pickup truck? Yeah, actually, I stopped, I talked to Chris Yates this week, and uh, he's going to be at the Nebraska seminar on Thursday evening, and he's going to be there with my new truck. We're going to swap trucks out right there before that seminar starts. Yeah, he uh, he called me, and mine's, mine arrived at the dealer, but we're still not sure with schedules when we're going to be able to hook up. Um, I had a fabulous day yesterday up until the point that at late in the evening, I found out I had to drive home through the night, but I got to hang out with some boys from Tennessee that are just as serious as serious can be about deer hunting. And they showed me pictures of not only what they've gotten pictures of what they've shot, but what the neighbors in that area. And I'm telling you what, 
there is big deer in Tennessee and I don't want everybody thinking I'm telling everybody to rush to Tennessee, but, um, I had, I had no idea that some of the pockets that if you manage right and, and do the right thing, get some age structure, you can, you can have some absolute hammers down there. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I had a, I had a great time. We got a 10 year old fan that's listening right now. That's wearing his chasing giants hat. I gave him a chasing giants hat and he was going to be on the podcast last night with us if the, we didn't have the computer problem. So, buddy, I owe you a spot on the podcast. He, ha- I think he had a question picked out that he was going to put you on the spot uh, as as kind of a surprise. So we'll have to do that another time when I see him next. Yeah, sorry it didn't work out. That would have been a treat for sure. All right, well, let's hear from our friends at Asia, and then we'll be right back to get ready for our listener-submitted questions. We're going to try to get five of these things in tonight. Osseo Gear introduces a premium line of bow hunting gear that is unmatched, pairing nature's finest camouflage with the best technological innovations. Osseo Gear brings whitetail bow hunters the gear they need to be the best at their craft. The unique camouflage mimics the intricate feather pattern of North America's greatest predatorial creatures. Designed for invisibility, built for comfort, and engineered for function. Visit osseogear.com. That's A-S-I-O-Gear.com to start shopping. Osseo Gear, prepare to be invisible. All right, Don. Well, thanks to our friends at Osseo. Joe Miles is wrapping up the Great American Show circuit today, and he said that it was a line of people ready to come in there and meet him, and uh, they had stock of Osseo at the show this year. So I'm really happy for them. They, uh, I think they moved a lot of product, but more importantly, they got to meet a lot of people that listen to this podcast that wanted to see him. And I think Joe just told us that he's going to be at one or two of the master classes with us this year. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, good deal. Um, look forward to that. We've invited uh, all our sponsors to, you know, attend one of those classes. So let them see, well, you know, what we're all about. Well, speaking of sponsors, um, transparency has always been very important to us and we're not hiding anything, but um, I think you wanted to make a, a quick little comment about some changes that are happening as we move forward into 23. Yeah, you know, uh, we take our, our sponsors very serious. We try to do the best job we can to promote them. And then we're also looking for good fits, you know, and uh, for the last I don't know how many years um, Novix has been a sponsor of ours. Um, fantastic people, fantastic products. And I talked with the owner um, of Novix this week, and we was trying to hash out, uh, you know, the details of a sponsorship agreement. And the, the more it, uh, I thought about that whole situation, you know, most of our um, clients and the people that, that we had come in contact with, the people that uh, are, are, we're going to be able to influence for our sponsors are probably not the best fit for the Novix stand line. And that that's not taking a thing away from Novix whatsoever, but you know, for the, the run and gun type hunter, the public land hunter, Novix is as good as it gets. And I, I will never say a bad word about Novix They're made in America. Uh, they're a company with, with great people behind it, just fantastic people. But you know, most of our clients are going to be guys that are going to want either enclosed blinds, or ladder stands. And that's just the fact of the matter. And, and just to be true to our sponsors, I, I don't think we could have done justice for Novix with our following. And, you know, we made the difficult decision to, to move away from them. We do not have a, another tree stand sponsor in them just waiting, you know, in the shadows to pop up. That, that's not the case at all. It was a case of a good fit. And yeah, Novix has fantastic products and Novix has fantastic people behind the brand, but for the, the type of hunter that, that we're reaching the most, the land manager that owns his property, he's not going out and doing a hanging hunt. Um, he's establishing his stand sites this time of the year. And, you know, a lot of those guys are like ladder stands. A lot of them are, are up there in age for them to be old enough that they can afford a hunting property you know they're probably up there 40 50 years old or maybe even older where the ladder stand is a better fit for those guys in their situation i just kind of felt we owed it to 
to Novix as well as our followers um, to move in a different direction. And, and again, we don't have another tree stand sponsor waiting, but we certainly appreciate Novix past support. We wish them all the best. You know, I told them guys, if they're ever in my area to stop and I'll buy lunch, there's absolutely no hard feelings whatsoever, but that's just a sponsorship that we've kind of moved away from. Well, there's a couple things. We've been debating this for a while and kind of seen it coming, but, you know, to some extent we're a little too loyal, but there is absolutely nothing wrong with the people that want to go run and gun or uh, saddle hunt, even though, you know, for some reason when we poked fun at Wes about that three years ago, it kind of took off on a world of its own. But that's kind of a direction that some of our followers still do that. And if 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 you're going to have one stand and pack it in, even though we're not affiliated with them or going to continue promoting them, I would still go with Novix beyond a doubt. But I think there's just still a lot of people, whether it's a lock on stand or ladder stand where they're setting up a property and they need five, six, seven, ten stands, depending on the size of the property, they're not going to go out and buy uh, $340 sets, you know, to have in each location, they're going to, they're going to buy a ladder stand or they're going to buy a, a, a more of a steel lock on with a chain. So, um, I think it's, I think it's a good move for both of us. They can focus where they want to focus with their marketing dollars. And, and, you know, we, we think the world of Jeff and especially our friend, Frank Archie, um, nobody else I'd rather support and wish them the best of luck. But again, like you said, I just think um, we're going to be buying some ladder stands. And if those people, it's kind of like the Osseo deal. We don't have something necessarily lined up here. Um, if somebody wants to make a recommendation of a good ladder stand that they like, uh, make a comment down below, send us a message because we're going to buy some and, and test them out. And if that company wants to work with us, great. If not, we're still going to use the best thing that fits what our style is and kind of what we need to do. Um, right. but run and gun just in saddle hunting isn't us. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, fully, fully support those who want to do it, but it's just not us. Right. Yeah, and it, you know, the, to be honest, it was us 25 years ago. Um, not me. <laughs> I, I, I did a lot. I, I did it a lot. I mean, I hung a lot of stand hanging hunt, you know, and I'll still use my Novix. If I find a buck on public land that I'm going to chase, I'm still going to be using those Novix stands to do that. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not going to throw those Novix stands away that I have. I'll, I'll continue to use them in the right situation. Yeah. You know, we, we hang, we hang, um, lock ones up in Illinois every year and pull them and then go back in and hang them. We know what trees we're going in. So we're still going to use them for those, but you know, that's, we had, we, we were affiliated with the, the company when they were still the original lone wolf and, and we wanted to help them as they had to go through their situation with rebranding the company to Novix because of the situations involved there. And, um, I think it's just now the better fit. Now that that's all shaken out, we can just, um, you know, shake hands and wish each other best of luck and move on. So, yep. All right. Well, with that, uh, let's move on. And, uh, let, I think we're going to, we, you picked out some really long questions this week. So I think a couple of yeah. these are going to create some dialogue and take some time. So let's go ahead and move over to that. So I'm going to share my screen for the first one. Well, the fact that I've been coughing and had a sore throat all week will really uh, bode well for these long questions. I get to read them, <laughs> but <laughs> um, the first one comes from Zach from Hidalgo, Illinois. He says, hey, Don and Terry, I've been seeing videos of people play, playing out straw on their south-facing hillsides for extra cover. What is your opinion on this? Is it worth it? Is there really a purpose of doing this, or is it a waste of money? I'm curious on what your guys' opinions are and if you have heard of people doing this. To me, it doesn't seem it's worth it when you can't guarantee bucks are going to bed on your south-facing hillsides. Well, Zach, I'm with you 100%. I'm, you know, everybody is trying to overthink killing big deer, and this is just another example, um, you know, throwing out straw to, in the wintertime to get those bucks to bed on it. I'm sure it probably happens to some degree, but I'm going to guess the human intrusion factor of going and putting that straw out. And, and then, of course, whoever the people that are doing that, if the, they don't understand human intrusion out of the gate or they'd never do it. So they're probably in there, 
you know, every week or two looking for shed antlers around those straw piles. Um, I think it's an absolutely ridiculous idea. I'm not saying the bucks are never going to use it, but uh, th those deer have gotten along for years and years and years without anybody out there throwing straw on the ground for them. I'd rather somebody this time of year, instead of doing that, go in and, and heavy TSI cut a south-facing hillside and and be ready for next year uh, for those bucks to be bedded up on that on that hill um, with a food plot really close and access in between them than worrying about laying straw out. Um, go in there with a chainsaw. If you really want to create thermal cover, that's the undergrowth. I mean, look at cattle out in a pasture. We've talked about that multiple times. They know where to go to get out of the wind and rain and, and get some cover to protect them. Right. That's, uh, that's one of the things that on every property I was on yesterday, um, one of the, one of the, my friends that had me down to Tennessee, he owns several tracks. So we went around to each different track and every single time when I told him how much I wanted cut in a certain area that was adjacent to a food, a food plot and how we were going to hunt it, he just got this big grin on it. And I said, buddy, you cannot cut it too hard. You know, you're going to mm -hmm. lose maybe for timber value in this section, you're going to lose maybe 10 trees total that have potential timber, timber, uh, um, value later on. But for right now, it needs to look like a tornado went through it. I know when we were up at, um, Ray Naden's place for the remote master class, when you said cut it hard, they cut that one area hard. <laughs> yep. And that's, uh, what it needs to look like. There wasn't a tree stand and everything was laid flat. So, yep. I think I think you're better you're better served with some chainsaw time and chainsaw gas than you are throwing bales of straw out across the field. That was a new one on me. I'd never heard of the straw deal I before. I hadn't either. Well, here's a long one. Hopefully you can read the text. If not, we'll have to pause and I'll have to change the font size for you. I think I'll be able to get through it. This one's from Sean Richardson from Irving, New York. He says, there has been so much commotion lately over the subject of invasive species. I feel as both you and the psycho misled uneducated nature groups are both missing the main point. <laughs> well, I love your description of, of the, my opponent. Uh, anyway, he says, and I'm trying hard to put you on the spot. My question is, wouldn't it make more sense instead of worrying about non-native species to worry more about increasing the number of native species? Some of the best deer nutrition comes from native wildflowers. We have a bad habit of calling everything native weeds. In fact, most of these weeds are highly nutritious, forbs. I feel it's best to add these native pollinator species to a bedding planting, along with native grass species such as Indian grass, big blue stem, and little blue stem, and the switchgrass we are all so familiar with, all in the same bedding plot and miscanthus patches out there for structure. Would you be being a better steward of the land by planting these more diverse bedding plots that benefit multiple species rather than monocultures of switchgrass? Also, an old apple tree with suckering roots is more invasive than miscanthus. I am 29 years old now and started listening to your podcast from the beginning. I wanted to say thank you for helping me keep my priorities in check throughout COVID when I had very little contact with other people. I also have a question specifically for Terry. Do you think you would have had your target buck last season if you were hunting from a love swing? <laughs> the way I see it, you would have already been standing. Thanks again for the podcast. <laughs> well. A lot there. You. Sean, um, I do not like... I, when I'm setting up a property for deer, I, I want to create deer travel patterns that will allow the hunter the best chance possible to kill a buck. And the idea of going out there and mixing browse species, forbs as you call them, with these bedding grasses, you're, you're just mixing bedding cover and food all in one area. Uh, so that buck, all he's got to do is stand up from his bed and he can start feeding. He, he does not have to move. And this makes him very difficult to kill. I would much rather see the food totally separate. In fact, um, most of the time, if you follow along on the Whitetail Master Academy and 
and see the videos of these properties that uh, we're sharing and, and how we're laying them out, we're concentrating those food sources. We're not just randomly scattering food over an entire property. We're concentrated those food sources. And, you know, you may have a food plot, but right on the edge of the plot, uh, we've got fruit trees. Uh, we may have clover under those fruit trees, but we're concentrating those food sources rather than randomly scattering it, you, you know, about. So, you know, the misconception that a monoculture of grass is a bad thing, um, I, I don't think that's accurate at all. You're still providing the deer and other wildlife the cover they need, and you're not ignoring the food. It's just that you're you're not mixing the two. You're you're keeping them separate, and in doing so, uh, you're making the deer on your property way more killable, easier to hunt. So there's more than one way to skin a buck, and and my way is totally different than what you described. But I want to circle back to his first sentence where he says that you and the psycho misled educated nature groups are both missing the main point. No, I don't think we're missing the main point. These people that are saying that we should plant different types of native species instead of miscanthus don't understand what we're doing. We're planting a 32 inch wide strip that's making a fence. That's all we're doing. It's not like we're putting this across the whole hillside. It's not like we're putting this somewhere that's taking over. We're sacrificing basically 32 inches wide of an area so that a poacher from his truck isn't going to shoot into my food plot or that I can walk into a blind. These people just see miscanthus and they go absolutely nuts saying, you know, I don't know if they think that we're planting fields of this. I don't. And, and they want us to put something there that's valuable for the wildlife. What's valuable for the wildlife is protecting them. And that's one of the tools mm -hmm. we can use so that we can hunt them effectively or that our idiot neighbors don't don't shoot out of their truck when they are spotlighting. So I don't think most people really understand this. They just get so distracted from it at the beginning and then they go on these rants. So. I, I disagree with you, Sean. I, th I think most people are missing our point of what we're using this product for. Well, I agree with that 100%, Terry. You, you make an excellent point. Um, I, I would love to debate one of these nature freaks, or I shouldn't say nature freaks, native species at all cost freaks, because uh, I'm telling you, I, I've got a... <laughs> I've got a couple of points that I can make and I'm going to save them in case that opportunity ever comes up. But these people are so far out of line with reality. It's, it's almost like the, the liberal mindset. You can just tell these people have spent way too much time in academia world and not enough time in the real world that they've been brainwashed just like the liberals. Yeah, they just, they, I don't think they understand. We're, we're using this product to protect them. Um, or to give us access. It's it's literally 32 inches wide of a strip, or if we're using it inside of, of switchgrass, it's just additional cover for them to back up against and stay warm and protected. So I just, I don't, I don't think people get it. Um, did you answer all the questions? I, well, I think there was one for you about a love swing there at the end. Um, I don't know, maybe uh, we'll never know. Cause I'm not going to get in one. I'm, People, I'm too old. I know people say they're safer. Um, I don't care. I, I like hunting the way I hunt. <laughs> it's fine. If somebody else wants to hunt in one, go for it. No, no big deal. We were just poking fun of Wes at one point, just like I am wearing this Code Brown shirt. So <laughs> I should have stood up. That's the lesson learned. Hey, Spinks from Quiet Cat here in our virtual showroom space where you can connect with a product expert and learn all about our bikes, our accessories, and what makes Quiet Cat the leader in off-road electric bikes. Schedule a live session today by clicking in the link below or going to quietcat.com slash meet. Next question comes from my buddy, Kent Tabor from Finley, Illinois. Go to church with Kent. 
Um, he says, Don, in the best bedding areas I find on public ground, the actual beds are in grassy areas where sunlight can make it to the ground around briar thickets or short brushy cover. Have you ever planted any type of grass inside the wooded cover on your farm? If so, what did you use and how did it turn out? Thanks for the info every week. Well, Kent, um, I have not done that. It's very difficult to establish grass in, in areas like you described, but you make an excellent observation. You know, I talk about it a lot of times that my favorite deer cover is a grown up cow pasture. And that cover, you know, when, when the cows get removed from that pasture and those grasses are, are allowed to, you know, fill in with weeds and, and saplings and briars and such, but yet there's still grass there, that's when that cover is at its absolute best. Now, over time, say 20 years or so, that woody vegetation, those tree saplings, whatever, they, they just get bigger and bigger and they dominate and they start shading it out and you have less and less grass. And as you get less and less grass in those areas, it seems like the deer utilize it less and less. And that bedding cover is really the best when there's some grasses in there on the ground. And you know what I've done on my farm where these, where it was once all cattle pasture and I've allowed the, the trees to grow up primarily through natural generation. Although some of the areas were planted in, in CRP trees, but you know, I've went in there with a chainsaw and when those grasses are starting to thin down, I'll cut some trees out, some junk trees or trees that are crowding each other and get some sunlight back in there and it'll regenerate that grass that was starting to get choked out. So um, great observation where there's grass on the ground, those deer really like to bed in those areas. Yeah. And the same, same holds true for young cedars. If you have young cedars that still have the greenery all the way to the ground that's still good cover but once that cedar gets big enough that you got 24 30 inches that are just tree trunk and then you got your your uh, ball of four or green up at the top that's now worthless to to whitetail so whether you go in and, and whack that thing with a chainsaw you go in with a mulching head every five years and cut a section or if you bush hog it early enough i think rotating those areas on my farm has probably been the biggest um i would say the biggest plus to anything i've ever done because it was it's grown up cattle pasture old dairy farm and every year i mow one section of it with a bush hog just to get the mm -hmm. saplings and everything out and still leave the rest it come by by early summer it's it's back up of chest high again so you're not losing anything but i just try to keep it clear that grass is the key it's all about sunlight in the ground you know the cedar trees you described terry the reason those bottom branches start to die is they become shaded as those cedar trees start growing into each other and those lower branches get shaded that's what causes them to die and lose their green so the key is keeping sunlight in there yep This is the biggest step we've taken in reducing vibration and sound since 3D damping. What will my new setup do for me that my last year setup did not? <laughs> Matthew's Pioneer Damping. We own silence, we own stealth. Ah, this is from Micah Brewbaker from Eaton, Ohio. Uh, he says, greetings to all. I have some questions about the difference between some of the methods that you teach versus some of, and this, Micah, he used this person's name, but I, I took the name out because uh, we're going to, we're not going to use this podcast to call people out by name and, and yeah, we're not going there. basically bash them. But anyway, he says, one that I am very interested in is your real world wildlife products bedding in a bag. He would say that is the other habitat guru, if you will. He would say that three different types of grass is still just a grass monoculture that deer would rather not bed in since there is no browse when they stand up versus planting switchgrass and leaving pockets of diversity for browse. Do you all advocate diversity pockets or would you plant solid bedding in a bag if you were trying to create habitat in an old ag field? Are there things that he teaches that I should shy away from? 
Something I really am blessed by is your faith in a weak, spineless world. Thank you for considering my question. Well, Micah, I think I kind of answered this in a previous question. There's a reason that I prefer to keep the, the grasses separate from the forbs and not mixed together. We're, we're creating travel patterns. We're forcing that deer when he stands up and when he gets hungry, we're forcing him to move a certain distance to that food, which makes him killable. If all he has to do is stand up, he becomes a whole lot more difficult to kill. Um, so, you know, it doesn't matter how many grasses you can use straight switch grass, or you can use the three grass mix and, and are bedding in a bag. It, it's the same result. I do agree that a, a grass monoculture, even if there's three species there is, is essentially grass or bedding cover. Uh, but I, I see absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, I see great benefits to that. Uh, I think your last question was what what else do you guys disagree on or something like that? Well, I, I think there's plenty that we disagree on. Um, I, I want to take it right back to a statement that I've made several weeks back, and I think I've made it numerous times or multiple times anyway, and, and that is when you're looking to take advice from someone, take a close look at the person you're getting the advice from. And I don't mean this to bash anybody, but you know, if, if you're taking advice from someone in a different region of the country, if you're taking advice from someone who hunts with a rifle and you're a bow hunter, um, you know, there's a whole lot of different factors that you need to, to take into consideration. And, and then you need to look at that person's success. The internet today is absolutely full of people offering advice that have zero experience behind that advice. They're, they're just repeating things they've heard other people say. They're throwing out ideas that they maybe dreamed up in their head that sound good, but until they can back it up with mature bucks on the ground, killed the same way that you're going to be hunting, then you need to keep looking and, and get your advice elsewhere. Get your advice from someone who's proven that his methods work. Yeah, I'd take it a step further. If, if, if you're looking to take advice from someone who's trying to promote themselves or their strategy by bashing someone else, you should immediately raise some caution. Um, if, if you have an idea that's worth being a good idea, it should stand on its own merit, not by selling it, saying it's, it's somebody else's wrong or you're doing it against somebody else and attacking personally. I guess that's my biggest beef with this industry right now is, you know, people want to sell things or promote an idea by bashing someone else's idea. And I'm just not my style. I think, um, I think that gets a little out of hand right now. I would totally agree with that. So, but yeah, let's, let's, let's spin this a little bit because I don't think people really understand what the advantage of going like with a blend of grasses. So we let's just spin it back to a more of a real world question here for an education segment. We sell straight switch, switch, switch grass, and then we sell bedding in a bag, which has three different varieties in it. If I've heard multiple people straight up ask you, what do you recommend if you were doing it on your farm? And nine times out of 10, you say, I recommend just straight switch grass give a brief reason why you just recommend that out of the gate, but then also say what the advantages would be if somebody wanted to go with a blend of Indian grass, big blue stem and switch grass to have uh, more diversity in the type of grass. Well, the, the bedding in a bag with the three grasses, the Indian grass, big blue stem, switch grass, that is a perfect blend for a CRP project where the government requires you to have multiple species in that planting. And we've done the research. I mean, each one of those different species has, you know, maybe 15 or 20 or plus different varieties within that species. So we've done the research to find the variety of big blue stem, the exact variety of Indian grass, the perfect variety of switchgrass that stands the best. And uh, that's what we're looking for, standability so it doesn't get knocked flat in the winter. And uh, of those three grass species, and even the specific variety of those species, the, the real world switchgrass is the one of the three that stands the best. It gets the tallest and stands the best. 
and uh, you know the whole native grass thing is something that uh, I become uh, really interested in since my first planting probably 20 plus years ago and, and it's something I continue to learn and, and you know we work with a specific grower for our real world switchgrass and, and uh, he's been really instrumental in, in educating me on different switchgrass varieties so there's a new switchgrass variety out there that's causing a little bit of a buzz right now it's called rc big rock and i i you know posed the question to our grower and he was very very familiar with rc big rock and he says i'm telling you the stuff will not compare to what you the the, the real world switchgrass and uh you know i took his word for it but i i went ahead and i bought a bag of this RC Big Rock that I'm going to do my own. I'm going to prove to myself that we're selling the best because if there's something better, I want to know it. And the way he described it was that that certain switchgrass, switchgrasses grow like a triangle. And certain switchgrasses, the point of the triangle is at the bottom and others, the point of the triangle is at the top. And so the real world switchgrass, for example, it's got a, as it grows up, away from the ground that top you know spreads out and down within that um, those clumps are farther apart and deer and other critters can make uh, you know they can travel through there and create trails we see it on my farm every year when we do the whitetail master uh, class the you know i let the guys walk into my switchgrass and you know i've heard stories of switchgrass getting too thick that deer won't use it and i never understood that because mine's thick as can be and it's got deer trails all over it. Well, according to our grower, the, the other, some switchgrass varieties that grow with the, the triangle at the top, they're really dense down low, close to the ground, that switchgrass is super, super thick, and up higher, it's not as thick. And according to him, and it makes total sense, it, it can get too, too thick for, for a lot of critters, especially small game, you know, um, that, that can't get through there and the deer i mean they, the deer got to force themselves through it and and i guess that's something i really never understood until recently when i had that conversation about the rc big rock versus the real world and uh he assured me that go ahead and plant your test strip but i'm telling you that you're going to find that, that your real world switchgrass is hands down the superior switchgrass are you going to do that on the new 40 uh, that's the plan yeah i got you so I, i'm just going to do like one strip of that rc big rock uh, um, with my drill now, how wide the strip is i, I don't know it just depends on um you know how much that seed will cover uh, right. but i bought uh i think about 10 or 20 pounds of that see two bags of it two small bags gotcha and uh, you know i'm gonna well, think there's there's one other thing that i think that uh people don't realize as far as when to choose straight switchgrass versus a blend if it's an area that can potentially flood or has wet feet switchgrass is much more tolerant to that than a couple other varieties like indian grass yeah and especially i mean there's some switchgrasses that are more of an upland variety but overall um the real world switchgrass i'll tell you i know a, a planting of this stuff that's probably only maybe 10 miles from my house right in a river bottom right on the river bank in, in a bottom field and i've seen that field under five to ten feet of water for two weeks at a time the water goes down and boom that grass comes right back um very tolerant to flooding indian but grass would never survive like that never indian grass or big blue stem would both be choked out the first time that happened and the the amazing thing is that same real world switchgrass will do fantastic on an upland site where it's really dry and never floods as well. All right. Well, I hope that educated us some people a little bit about native grasses. I know we get a lot of questions and um, it's it's new to a lot of land managers, um, but, but even in the right pocket where you need to create bedding in open area, um, it can be a great tool no matter where you're at. But, you know, a lot of people aren't very familiar with it. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to end the show with a really long one here. This might take you a couple minutes to get through. Okay, this one comes from Chase Nicely from Blaine, Tennessee. He says, Don and Terry, I hope you both are doing well during this consulting season. This question for discussion is mainly for Don. I know in 2017 when you killed Smokey, 
It had been 13 years since you had killed your last 200-inch buck. After Smokey, it was a short turnaround until you killed Mel, and both Mel and Smokey coming off your personal farm. On a podcast this past fall, you mentioned your son-in-law, Corey, killed a buck off your farm that you stated, had he had another year or two, may have topped one, 170 inches, but elected to harvest him to allow more room for some better bucks. My question is this, do you believe that a farm, given the correct ingredients you feel to be important, food cover, no intrusion, correct management, et cetera, can produce a 200 inch deer every three to five years or even 10 years, or are those types of deer just anomalies and genetic freaks that happen to express their potential better than 99% of bucks? Also, if a 170 inch class buck isn't a deer you'd consider harvesting, what are the goals for you as a hunter now that you've killed multiple 200 inch deer? Is it 200 or bust? To most deer hunters, a deer over 170 is a deer of, of their lifetimes, especially given the variables we must contend with to let a deer get to that size. The reason I ask those questions is during the 13 year span between 200 inch bucks, were you managing your farm the way you are now to grow giant whitetails or a combination of scouting different farms and chasing giants on properties that weren't your own and couldn't manage, but a giant just happened to live there? Please don't take this offensive or as an attack because it's certainly not. I respect what you do and how you go about it. I'm just curious if a 170 to 190 class deer every other year is the maximum potential that you've identified that your property can produce which leads you to chasing giants outside your home farm. I apologize for being long-winded. Look forward to hearing your discussion on these questions in future podcasts as well. Uh, well, Chase, you threw a lot at me there, and I'm going to try to uh, <coughs> hit on every question you had. I'm sure I'm going to need Terry to throw a, a few of those ideas back at me as I forget, as I get on this discussion. But so first of all, my farm is very unique in the way it lays out and it's about to get a whole lot better um i guess i'll just go ahead and announce right now because i've got the uh, the uh surveyor coming this week but I, i've acquired uh some acreage that butts right up to my property it's acreage that i leased for a number of years um finally had the opportunity to uh buy an attractive land and trade my neighbor to get this piece that butts right up to me. I think by adding this, this acreage, it's only about 40 acres to my property. I'm going to have the ability to really increase the, the age structure of the bucks on my place. In other words, I think I'm going to be able to have more older age class bucks than I've ever had in the past. Now, as far as my goals, my, my goals are not necessarily to, to raise 200 inch deer. Um, my goal is to raise the best six year old bucks that I can. And there, and most bucks that are on my farm way, the vast majority of them are never going to hit 200 inches, no matter how long I let them live. They just aren't, they don't have the genetics for it, but I'm blessed that a few of them do. And the ones that do, I'm going to be doing everything in my power to allow those bucks to live old enough to express their genetic potential. Now, if I've got a buck coming up that uh, we're going to be talking about tomorrow night on the, the Whitetail Master Academy live session. If you're not a member of that, it'd be very similar to this podcast, except folks are listening live and they're, they're typing in the questions that are appearing on the screen and I'm answering them as they're they're popping up. I don't get any time to rehearse or to pick my questions. <clears throat> but this buck that we're going to be talking about tomorrow night, um, he's five years old this year. He'll be six years old next year. I have no idea if that buck is going to hit 200. I, my guess is the odds of him hitting 200 are less than 50-50. But next year, he's going to be a six-year-old buck. He's probably going to be at his prime. Um, he's going to be growing a rack that's as close to the biggest he's ever going to grow. Um, you know, I, I've got no idea what he's going to do, six, seven, eight, or whatever. But he's going to be right there, and more than likely, he, I'm going to shoot him next year or if he's still alive. I mean, 
he could die of EHD next summer. A neighbor could shoot him. He'd get hit by a car. A lot of things could happen. If he's still alive on my farm next year, there's a good chance I'll shoot that buck. And there's a very good chance he will not hit 200 inches. Um, so 200 inches is kind of a, I mean, I, it's like, it's more like a dream instead of a goal. My goal is to get six-year-old giants. And if that six-year-old giant happens to, to be 200 inches, well, great. Now, most farms, most properties, I just don't think you're going to be able to do that. I don't care where they're located. Even, they can be even in Iowa. The, the layout of the property has to be so specific that you can control a lot of the buck movement that it's, it's going to be really hard to do everywhere. Uh, the other thing I want to point out is, is you talked about the 13 year period between my 200 inch bucks. Well, something interesting happened in that two, in that 13 year period on my farm. I, I was pretty much managing the farm about the same way during that entire 13 year stretch. Although, um, I think I, I get a little bit better in my management as time goes on. But the interesting thing that happened was in 2012, we, we had a real bad EHD outbreak that pretty much wiped out the deer herd here. It knocked out at least 75, 80% of them. And it seemed to me like when those deer came back from that 2012 EHD outbreak, they came back bigger. And I don't know if the EHD virus wiped out the, the smaller gene bucks or whatever and, and what happened. But I've heard, uh, uh, I think it's Mark Drury talk about it. You know, after EHD, when the deer herd gets wiped out as they come back, that's a great opportunity for some really giant bucks. That's exactly what happened on my farm. And, uh, you know, I, I never dreamed I would kill a single 200 inch buck on this farm, let alone two. And, uh, you know, another thing you mentioned was that, you know, I go off the farm to find these giants. And, you know, last weekend we was riding in the truck with uh, Ray and Aiden. And, and I don't remember if you was in there at that time, Terry, you and Austin. But uh, Ray put it on me. He said, uh, what's your top six bucks score? And I thought, well, here. And he gets out his phone and I rattle off the numbers. And he said, your top six bucks, you know, average right at 200 inches. I said, yeah. I'm, you know, I knew my top five did. I hadn't ever thrown in number six, so I wasn't sure. And he says, how many farms did those six bucks come from? And I thought, I said, five different farms. So everybody gets the idea that all the bucks I shoot come off of this 120 acres. That is absolutely not the case at all. My top six bucks came from five different properties. One, two of them came from my home farm. The other four came from four different properties and those four different properties, I did not lease any of them, did not pay one cent for a lease. I did not have a single food plot on any of those properties. There wasn't a food plot there, period. There was no habitat work whatsoever. They were properties I knocked on doors and got permission. So, you know, I'm looking for giants, the biggest bucks I can find. And if they happen to be on my farm, well, that's fantastic. My odds of killing them there are really good. Um, but if they're just out on some place where I knock on the door for permission, so be it. You know, I'm willing, I'm up for that challenge as well, too. And, and I think that's a big thing that sets me apart from most of the hunting industry and the big buck killers in the hunting industry is that most of these guys are exclusive to hunting managed properties. And big, I can big honestly, tracks of land, though. Yeah. Thousands and, and thousands of acres where their sample size is huge where they're picking and choosing what target bucks to go after and then bringing other groups of people in to shoot their management deer. Everybody else doing this that's killing giants every year. John Mulligan was the one that told me this the other day. He said, you know, everybody else that's doing what you're doing at this level um, are hunting thousands and thousands of connected acres. And I got to thinking about it and I'm like, you're either doing that or you're paying for somebody to give you a lead on, on a hunt to go hunt it with an outfitter or whatever, paying mm -hmm. 10 to $20,000 or whatever they end up doing for finders fees. But it's, it's your place has just gotten really special, but what people don't understand is the bucks you're letting walk are other people's bucks of a lifetime because this is where you're at in the journey that that video that you're going to show tomorrow night on the whitetail academy 
would be a buck of a lifetime for 99% of the whitetail hunters. And you're just at the stage in your journey where you're okay, not shooting one to let him see if he blows up. And I think that's, that's the biggest difference. And, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm looking down at anybody cause I'm absolutely not. I, I think what I've done here, anybody could do on the right property. And it, it's really simple. And, I, and I've tried to lay it out. I haven't hidden a thing. You know, we got the haters out there saying that I'm turning loose pin deer, that I'm fencing in my farm and have one little opening for the deer to go in and out. And, and I'm being totally transparent. I mean, I'm bringing people onto my farm to see it. Um, we had over 150 people last year, um, got over 100 this year coming to the classes. And I, I'm being totally transparent with how I'm managing my bucks as far as culling. I take a lot of heat about that on social media about culling doesn't work and this and that. And, you know, folks, I'm laying out the blueprint for you to do the, the very thing that I've been doing. And if, believe me, if a simple country boy like me can do it, everybody listening can do it too. But it just comes down so much to the property and whether your neighbors are shooting these three-year-old 150, 160 inch bucks. At the, end of the, at the end of the day, that's really what it comes down to. And your property is just this island that you're a little bit more protected. doesn't mean you haven't lost deer to, to neighbors because you have. But, um, yeah, it's, it's most properties aren't laid out to where you can access every single uh, area of the farm from the outside, leaving the center alone and nobody hunting a fence line. Um, I don't have that. Most people don't have that. So the, the genetic well, freaks are also the ones that are really good, awesome bucks that everybody brags about that might really be three-year-olds that they don't want to admit. But, and if, mm -hmm. if that meets your goals, by all means, go ahead and shoot them. But it's just a special situation that you have there. Well, the interesting thing is that that situation I really believe is going to become twice as good as what it is today. Once I add this new section uh, to the farm, and like I said, the surveyor's coming this week. Uh, um, my neighbor and I, we've already got the attorney hired. She's already drawn up the contract for him and I to do the land swap and all that. But once this is, is completed, I will own a, a mile and a half of creek and every every tree on both sides of that creek for a mile and a half and it's just there's so many pockets of cover going to be along there that i'm going to be able to i think really increase the, the my, my ability to, to grow bucks to older age classes right i'll have more older bucks i may not i'll, I'll probably have a few more deer than what i got now but the the, the real key is i'm going to have more older age class bucks yeah. And this is the reason we're taking a break from having master classes is getting this all developed. And then when we open the master classes back in, it'll be basically, you know, phase two of this property that people can come see it and maybe even be good opportunity for people to come back. That's already been on one to, to get a second tour of it on what it's like after it's been put together. That's a great point. I was going to say the same thing, Terry, is that those master classes coming up in March, there's still a handful of openings, not many. Um, one of the four is totally full. One's only got one or two openings, and the other two have less than five openings. But if you want to see the farm today and then you want to come back in two or three years and, and see how I changed it, a uh, firsthand look, uh, there's not too many openings left to, to have that opportunity. All right. Great deal. Uh, reach out to us if you have a recommendation on a ladder stand. Uh, we got to be in the market for some here to put up here in the next uh, month and a half, two months. And I don't know. I'm about ready for bed. It's been a long night. Yeah, I bet you are. I want to make one more announcement before we close. Uh, Real World Wildlife Products. Folks, um, That this company is just taking off. The biggest hurdle that we face is shipping charges to our customers. I just seen the other day, the guy bought some bags of soybeans and had to pay over $50 a bag shipping. We need new dealers. And I'm hoping that our Chasing Giants family can, can help us set up some new dealers uh, in your region. If you don't have a, a dealer in your area, get with me and I will help you to, to hopefully set up a dealer in your area. It's gonna be good for you because it'll save you shipping costs on your products. Uh, it's going to be good for the dealer because it's going to, you know, add to his business. 
and it's just going to be good for us as well because we're going to get to move more products so uh really looking for some new dealers and here's another incentive next year in february february of 2024 we're going to be having a dealer event just for dealers and uh it's going to be really special we got a committee and it's already in place to plan this and uh it, the dealers are not going to want to miss it so Another advantage of being a dealer is you're going to get to come to that dealer event next year, not going to cost you a dime. So uh, hopefully to see a lot of new dealers there. All right. Sounds great. We appreciate everybody's support. Thank you very much. God bless everyone. Have a great week. Chasing Giants has been brought to you by Osseo Camo, Via Farm Real Estate Company, 360 Hunting Blinds, Victory Chevrolet, Real World Wildlife Products, Matthews Archery, Novix Tree Stands, Gingerich Tree Farm, WildlifeFarming.com, Quiet Cat, and Vortex Optics. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Chasing Giants.